0: If you have a copy of God's word, take it out this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two. We've been in a series, not through a book, uh, but through kind of a theme that we're calling finding freedom from the curated life. Finding freedom from the curated life. And this is our last week in this series. Next week we're going to dive off into the Beatitudes. And so if you have a copy of God's word, turn with me to Galatians chapter two. And we're going to look at an example of the curated life in the Apostle Peter. We're not going to read the entire chapter, although our text for this morning will include portions from all over this chapter. But before we um, dive in, I just want to pray and ask for God's help this morning. Every time we open the word, I I need help. I need help to focus on it. Nathan asked how we could pray for him this morning. I said, just focus. My brain is just all over the place. Um, but we also need his help because even when we're focused, we need the spirit's help to see what the spirit has written in this word. So let's pray. Father, we, um, we want you, we need you. Sometimes we only want you and we don't realize we need you or we only need you and really don't want you, but both are true. And so would you help us this morning as we open your word, speak to the depths of who we are, God we don't want to leave applying this to someone else or applying this to just the surface of who we are. But we want you to change our hearts this morning, so please work to that end. We're thankful for you and that you've given us a word in Jesus name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is kind of telling the story of how he became an apostle and how he came to preach the gospel and how he came to have a gospel to preach. And so he he shares uh how he had not received the gospel just from like men. This isn't just a a tradition of mankind or some doctrine that men came up with. No, he actually received it from the Lord. But then he makes sure the church in Galatia knows I didn't just kind of go rogue off on my own. He actually says, I actually went to Jerusalem. I laid before them what I was preaching to make sure I wasn't laboring or running in vain, he says. And he's like, look, they didn't add anything to the gospel that I was preaching. He's like, so I I said, look, this is the doctrine I've received. Is this right? He wanted to make sure. Is this the true gospel? There's so many lessons we could learn in that. But as he continues on, he's like, but look, while we were there, uh, in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 2, it says, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ. So there was this issue of uh, Titus who was not Jewish. Some Jewish Christians made Titus think he really needed to be circumcised if he was going to be a full Christian because, you know, Christianity came from Judaism and obviously circumcision was one of the covenant marks. And so they said, look, that's nice that you've been baptized, you've accepted Jesus, but really you need to add on to this these Jewish tradition, this Jewish faith. You need to be circumcised. Paul says these false brothers have infiltrated and they're trying to make people think they've got to add something on to the gospel. He says, but we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. So he continues on and he's talking about this gospel. He's he's talking about how they recognized the apostles, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the very first church, recognized that he had the same gospel as them. They extended to him what he says the right hand of fellowship. And he recognized that it was the same grace at work in Paul, just like that was at work in Peter. And so, from this foundation, he jumps into verse 11. And this is going to be kind of where we sit this morning. Paul says, but when Cephas, the other name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's pretty strong language. Talking about two apostles going at it. I would love to hear that. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? I think the key word in this text for us this morning is the one he uses there in verse 13. He uses it twice and it's hypocrisy. Now, I grew up hearing the charge leveled against the church often that it's just a bunch of hypocrites. To which I finally learned the best response is, (laughs) Amen. exactly what we are. That is our claim. That's why we worship Jesus, because I'm a hypocrite. And so this word hypocrisy, I think is the key word to understanding this text because the Greek word, it actually pulls out a wonderful depth of meaning beyond what maybe the way we use it today. Hypocrisy literally meant in the first century, as Paul's writing this, it it portrayed someone who was wearing a mask in a play. It portrayed someone who was just, like one of the definitions is play acting. So picture a theater, picture a play, picture someone, uh, our kids have a hard time right now grasping like, okay, is this real or is it not in a movie? Like did that real, okay, they've kind of understood that's a cartoon, but they don't understand like, is that the real person in this live action movie or are they playing a part? So when Paul uses the word hypocrisy, he's, play- he's saying they were playing a part. And so our first point this morning, we're gonna look at the performance of your life. And like any good performance, there's two main parts. One is the script, and the other is the audience. So first, what's the script? Just like in any show or any movie, the script is the content. It's the words, the action, the drama that pulls you in. See, in this text, Peter's awkward maneuver with the Gentiles He's playing out a script. He's playing a part. See, because before these certain men from James came down to Antioch, Peter is among the non Jewish people. When you read Gentile, just think non Jewish. He's with them. It says he's eating with them, he's fellowshipping with them. But then what happened when the Jewish Christians came? Peter pulled back, and the hypocrisy begins. He begins to wear the mask, he begins to act out the script. He begins to live in a way that Paul says is deviating from the truth of the gospel. His awkward maneuver with the Gentiles was actually a way that Peter was adding another demand to the gospel. See, the script of our performance is all the things that we add to the gospel. The things that we think we need to add to Jesus, the ways that we must add to Jesus to find full acceptance. We unashamedly believe in a Jesus plus nothing gospel. But when we remove nothing and we add something in, we all of a sudden have a standard that we think we have to live up to. For Peter, it was Jesus plus law, Old Testament, Jewish customs and religion. I can't mix with the Gentiles, I can't eat with them because of these unclean laws. And you know what? And he all of a sudden began to believe Jesus was not enough. When we begin to believe that Jesus is not enough, we think there's something else we must do to make it enough. We begin to curate or edit our lives to add that thing, to try to accomplish that thing, or like in Peter's case, at least appear like we do. That's what Paul's indictment of Peter was. You're a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile. So it's not even that Peter, you know, I think the men from James kinda had a different situation than Peter they were probably more of the legalistic and perfectionist. They probably weren't hypocritical, like eating with them sometimes and not other times. They just stayed away altogether, but Peter was kinda back and forth. He wanted to look the part. He felt like, hey, in front of these people, I've gotta live like this, but in front of these people, I've gotta live a little bit of a different way, and that leads us to the second part of the performance of your life. It's not just the script, but it's an audience. Who was the audience? Because like any good show or movie, it's written for a specific audience. Very few things appeal to everyone. Things are written for a certain demographic, a certain age group, people from a certain place, and it resonates with a certain group of people. So who's the audience? Well, for Peter, it's really clear. It's these men that had come down from James. But what's the audience we're performing for? Whose approval do we need? So the Bible, when it, When we think about the audience we're performing for, the Bible calls it the fear of man. Listen to Ed Welch for just a second talk about the fear of man. It includes being afraid of someone, so that's how we think of the word fear, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people and putting our trust in them. See, Peter feared this group of people He let this group of people control his actions because he was acting in one way and then when he saw them, he changed the way he was acting because they were present. So Peter feared this group of people from the Jerusalem church and here's what Ray Ortland says about fear of man. Fear of human disapproval feeds political posturing. It makes us want to be perceived in a certain way and identified with certain people. That's the curated life we've been talking about this month political posturing, posturing our image to be perceived in a certain way, being one person in one setting and a different person in another setting. But Ray Ortland continues on and says, if we're justified in Christ, then no one can demand more. And it's in this demanding more that we find the curated life, that we find where we want to demand more of ourselves than what Jesus has already provided do you ever find yourselves demanding more of yourself or thinking someone else demands more of you or even thinking God demands more of you than what Jesus has already provided? Hey, Jesus, your sacrifice was wonderful. I listened to a song this morning that I think is kind of new to me, at least called Thank You for the Blood. And I, Hey, thank Jesus, the blood you shed is great, but I've got to come alongside and kind of make up what's lacking in that. This... That's not enough. See, my life's not complete, Jesus, with just what you did because these people are looking at me and they're demanding more of me. I've got to use a certain kind of language to be accepted by them. I've got to be perfect. I've got to act in a certain way and dress in a certain way. I've got to have these certain kind of emotional highs or emotional lows. I've got to listen to a certain kind of music. I've got to have lots of knowledge or read certain kind of books or a certain number of books. I remember when I was in seminary and I was only on campus for a very short time, but I remember being on campus and realize everybody wants to talk about the Bible all the time. And I, re- I just told somebody this a couple weeks ago who was also at the same seminary and then they lived down here. And I said, I just, I just wanted someone to like cuss at me one time. <laughs> just to like remember like, oh, okay, this is not everybody all the time. But there was this stigma that that's just what you wanted to talk about and that's all that there was in the world and let's talk about the way this person interpreted this passage or wrote this work 500 years ago and it was like, wait a minute, that was how you got in at seminary culture. But that's not just seminary, that's everywhere. We all have a certain kind of culture we're trying to measure up to or we think is putting demands on us that's more than what Christ has already provided When we feel that more is demanded of us, it doesn't necessarily mean we walk away from our Christian beliefs. It often means we add to them, though. So, to determine our audience that we're performing for, who are you most afraid of seeing you? Who are you fearful of seeing the real you? It could be a parent that you've always longed for their approval from the time you were young. And maybe you got it, maybe you found the ways when you were young to get it. And then as you got older you realized, I'm not not doing that anymore, I don't play sports the way that I did and that was how I bonded with that parent or I don't excel in my grades anymore because I'm not in school anymore and that was the way I learned to find the acceptance from that person. Or maybe it's the opposite, maybe you didn't have a parent to earn the approval from. So, maybe it was always a peer group, and you were always walking in the room looking at how do I get you to love me? How do I get you to like me? I think when we can see, who are we afraid of really seeing us? Who do you not want to see your flaws? Who's the audience that you imagine always watching you and giving you a grade on your life? So what we see here from Peter in Galatians chapter two is the performance of your life or maybe it's the performance for your life. If I perform, it will give me life. And Paul calls it right out. He says, no, no, no. The issue here is that you're performing. There's this script. You think you've got to add things to the gospel. You think you've got to add things to Jesus. You're living in the fear of man, think, letting this audience determine who you are and how you ought to live. But Paul goes on in verses 15 and 16 to offer a solution. And that's our second point this morning, completed in Christ. See, the curated life begs us to add things onto the gospel in order to find Acceptance. And then that's inflamed when we begin to live in fear of others begging for their approval as if they're an audience. But the solution that Paul offers is justification in Christ alone by faith alone. Read a couple of these verses with me in verse 15 and 16. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners and yet because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. The good news of the gospel is that the settled foundation of our acceptance is Jesus. The settled, firm foundation of your acceptance is Jesus. It's not in your story, it's not in your skills, it's not in your personality, it's in Jesus. Paul uses the word justification here and justification means that because of Jesus, God declares you innocent rather than guilty. Righteous rather than sinful and accepted rather than condemned. That's what justification means. That you're innocent and you're righteous and you're accepted. You are not guilty and sinful and condemned. Why? You said, I I don't live that way. I've never lived that way. That's exactly the point of the gospel. That you didn't and you haven't and you couldn't, but Jesus did. And so in Jesus, God has justified you. And that's Paul's point here. So in order to belong to God and his people, nothing more is required of you than what Jesus has already provided. And that is the message we will preach until we die at Shalford. Nothing more is required of you than what Jesus has already provided. Welcome. I don't know if you came this morning thinking, wonderful, let's go to church and add more burdens onto my back that I already cannot bear. I can't wait to hear what else I need to do and how much more I need to give. Well, that's not what you're going to get this morning, and I hope never at Shalford. We're not here to add more burdens to you because Christ is not here to add more burdens to you. Jesus is here to remove them. So contrary to popular opinion about what church is and what we do, we aren't here to give you a list of things you need to go figure out. We're here to hold up Jesus. Who has done it all? I've been thinking this week, we use the word mission in church a lot. And I wonder if that places the emphasis in the wrong place. The mission is like this thing you go do and you go accomplish. And we get rallied up and we get fired up and energetic and we go accomplish the mission. And I wonder if maybe the more accurate word we have is we have an invitation. God invites us to know him and to love him because he loves us. And then to the world, we don't have a mission to go and conquer and attack. To the world, we have an invitation. Hey, I really don't have it together at all. I would like to invite you to come look at the one who has saved me, believe it or not. Because, like our second point is called completed in Christ. In Christ, this is Ray Ortland again. The need to conceal our failure and display false superiority no longer lives. You don't have to curate and edit your life to look like you're more superior than you are. No, friends, Christ is enough for you this morning. You really can take off the mask of your hypocrisy this morning. You can stop playing the part. You can lay down the demands of the curated life. And you can stop adding extra things to the work of Jesus. You're not held to a higher standard. Christ is enough. You're not in need of something else to find acceptance. Christ is enough. You're not lacking the things that make you truly good. Christ is enough. You're not condemned, and you never will be again. Christ is enough. You're not expected to make up for what's lacking. Christ is enough. Christ is enough for you no matter where you find yourself this morning. There's nothing you can say to surprise God because there's nothing you can say, nothing you can feel, nothing you can do, nothing you can think that is outside the bounds of what Christ has accomplished. That is, is the message Paul's preaching in Galatians 2. It's not as if being a Gentile was somehow outside the bounds of what Christ was able to do. It's not like having a messy life story is outside the bounds of what Christ is able to love and to save. It's not like looking into your past and saying, wow, I, I don't look like the other people in church. There's no way Christ could really. No, <laughs> no friends. Christ is enough. Christ is enough and he is sufficient for you this morning. But there's a third point to this message as you keep reading in Galatians 2. And it's dying to live. The only way we can actually live free from this burden of the curated life is to die. Is to die. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible or hearing it taught, you might be thinking like, this just turned cultish. And I'll give you that. It sounds a little weird. But you got to understand that the Bible uses death language to talk about what gives you life. And the reason it uses death language to talk about what really gives you life is because the only way Christ could be resurrected is if he died first. And then the Bible uses all this wonderful and beautiful metaphorical yet still very real language that if you're going to live with Christ, you must die with Christ. That doesn't mean we have crosses waiting in the back for everyone. What that means is that you're invited to participate in what Christ has already done by faith. And that's what Paul says. Would you read with me in verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. True life will only come through death. The power of sin in you to want to curate and to add to Jesus and to say, Jesus, you're not enough. You're not really God. I need to do all this stuff to find acceptance. The power of sin in you is so strong. The only way it can be defeated in your heart and in your life is through death. It must die. And the good news is there's nothing you need to do to make it die. Christ has done it all, I've been crucified with Christ. We can only lay this curated life down if we die to our old way of thinking. It really is that radical. So anyone you hear stand up and say, hey, here's three strategies, here's three ways this week that you can, hey, here's six uh, you know, conversations you can have over the next two months that will lead to you. No, no, it's this radical, it's not strategies, it's not ways, it's not a pathway to where you can kinda add it to your life. It is that you need to die with Christ. We must be crucified with Christ so that our old ways of thinking that we learned pre Christ are put to death. Pre Christ, we had strategies for living that we learned ways of coping with reality and the brokenness we experienced inside of us and outside of us. We built entire ways of being around that. And this was all before we met a Savior. We have learned how to live independent from Christ. Those all must, in the words of Galatians 2.20, die, be crucified with Christ. And now it's in this new life that we're invited into a new community that really does hold one another to this new standard because the context for this whole teaching in Galatians 2 is one person confronting another person. So We would miss part of the point of this passage if we didn't talk about that. But the standard that Paul holds Peter to is not the standard of perfection. It's actually quite the opposite. He's holding Peter to the standard of walking in line with the truth of what he's confessed. He's holding him accountable to say, Peter, if you say Jesus is enough, then live like it. That's the kind of community we're called to be as a church, not the kind of community that comes up with our own rules, our own kind of cultural values that said, you've got to act like this and dress like this and talk like this, but the kind of community that says there is one standard here, that Christ is enough for us. And if you're committing yourself to this community, if you become a member here, if you covenant together with us, that's what we're holding each other to. Not that any of us would be perfect, but that we would live like Christ is perfect, like Christ is enough that's what Paul holds Peter to in Galatians 2. We're holding one another accountable to remember the total sufficiency of Jesus. So it doesn't mean that we're never going to confront one another and we're never going to call out sin. That's not what a culture of grace looks like. It's actually quite the opposite. It means that we freely confess sin. It means that we freely confront one another to say, hey, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel and I'm not smacking your hand. I'm inviting you back to this actually much more free reality of resting in Jesus. So if we're gonna find freedom from the curated life, if you're gonna find freedom from the burden of needing to curate and edit your life, to hide failures and present success stories, That's burdensome. If you're gonna find freedom from that, we gotta remember who you are in Jesus and that he is enough and then we must commit to walk together because relationships is one of the antidotes. It's one of the ways that we truly find that freedom. You can't do it alone. We've gotta do this thing together. And so, uh, I think this, I was talking with Matthew this week and I uh, gave him the text earlier in the week. And we usually meet in the second part of the week. And I said, Okay, give me your thoughts. He said, Man, this is just one of my favorite texts in all the Bible because it's just the gospel. It really is. This is the good news. So if you say, Okay, give me a conclusion, sum this thing up Christ is enough. He doesn't need your help, He wants you. Someone said to me in the fall, We were talking about a conversation about rest. And I said, what if you took a season of resting and you just didn't pour out, specifically as it related to their church? And this person responded back and said, I would feel like I was useless. And I said, have you ever considered you're not useful to God? You're not. Christ doesn't just need you, he wants you. He doesn't need you to add to what he's done. He wants you to come and rest in what he has already done for you. So when we hear this message, that Christ is enough, our hearts will come to a fork in the road. Do I trust this or not? And that's not just something you say with your lips. That's something you say with your actions. I can say with my lips, I trust this, but then I can go this week and act like I need to add and add and add. I can act like Christ isn't enough. And to trust this doesn't mean you take a blind leap of faith and it doesn't mean you have all the answers for how everything works out. It means you hear this message and you say, I need the life that Christ has and I believe he can even forgive my sin of unbelief. When we talk about putting your faith in Jesus, that doesn't mean I have a certain amount of evidence behind that I could come. That means, hey, yeah, there's evidence and we can go read the books. and talk. But it means, Jesus, I need you to be my life. So the crossroads in our heart this morning, I want to invite you. Jesus invites you. Would you trust him? Would you trust this morning that Jesus is enough? And I pray, I hope that some of you may trust this morning for the very first time in your life. Move the trust away from yourself and put it on Jesus. And make this your prayer. Jesus, I need you because I can't save myself. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus. And I would invite you to make that your prayer this morning and maybe for the first time become a follower of Jesus. I'd be happy to talk with you. Uh, Any of our elders who are here would be happy to talk with you. Um, Justin, uh, Lynn, Emery. It might be hard to come interrupt him as he's playing the bass, but uh, he'd put it down. I know he would We'd love to talk and help you discover how you can Remove the trust from yourself and put it in Jesus. So let's pray this morning. God, we are thankful for Jesus, that Jesus is enough. Because I think all of us have looked at ourselves enough times to know, I'm not enough, and if I keep trying to be enough, I'm going to burn myself out. God, I'm tired of trying to be enough. It's so freeing to have you that I can come to and in all honesty, just pour out my soul. I pray, God, for for this group of people that are here this morning, God. I pray as they're tired of trying to be enough, I pray that they'd come and take Jesus up on his invitation to come and find rest in him. I pray that they would take up your invitation, God, to receive the free gift of grace and allow you to justify them as a gift and not as something they've tried to earn. I pray this morning, God, for the folks that have never turned and stopped trusting in themselves and trust in you. I pray that this morning they would do that and that next week they would take the Lord's table with us for the very first time in true assurance of faith, God. We love you, and we are a church, a people, your people, that declares boldly, and we want to declare for the rest of our life, Christ is enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.